0: I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind.
1: Every week, we pick a couple breaking scientific studies, put them in context, and explain exactly what happened and why they matter.
0: So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, Oyster, I hardly know her. (laughs) New insights into how pearls are formed. And chronic users, the surprising results of a new long-term marijuana study. Okay, Lucas, why don't you get us started today? One of my sort of favorite childhood memories is, or types of childhood memories, is like remembering when I learned something really cool. Right. And one of the things I distinctly remember learning is where pearls come from. Okay. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure most of our listeners know, but pearls most commonly come from oysters. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, this just didn't make sense to me, <laughs> this like, such you know a pure, beautiful object came from something so gooey and slimy and gross.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a very strange concept. It,
0: it was yeah, it was a juxtaposition in my mind. I mean, I've since come to appreciate many of the qualities of oysters. <laughs> I, I quite like oysters. they're quite tasty. <laughs> I, I can I cannot stand. It's the texture, I can't do it. uh, it.'s it's like taking a bite of the ocean. It's so good. Oh, it's like taking a bite of someone else's tongue. In fact, I now probably prefer oysters to pearls. But I am still fascinated by that process. And there's a really interesting new study that came out this last, last week about it. And I mean, pretty much the question is, how do pearls form? We didn't already know that? Well, we've known how they form for quite some time. We've known the basic gist of it. Okay. But in many ways, it's still what scientists call black box. Right? Right. So we know what goes into an oyster. We know what comes out of an oyster. We don't really know what happens inside because it's very hard to observe what's actually happening. Right. Here's what we've known for a long time. Let me go over the basics quickly. Okay. Oysters produce a substance called nacre. Nacre? Nacre. N-A-C-R-E. Okay. So this is, you, you probably know the substance. It's most commonly known as mother of pearl.
1: Oh, yes. Okay.
0: Right. So this is the shiny stuff that lines the inside of their shell. Right. And it's the same stuff that pearls are made of. Mm -hmm. Chemically, it's a mineral called aragonite. Okay. And aragonite, if you go more basically in chemically, it's calcium carbonate. Okay. Essentially, calcium and carbon. Now, what else is calcium carbonate used in? Because that's a familiar compound. Totally. So the most common uh, mineral is calcite. Mm -hmm. And calcite is like if you go into a cave and you see like stalagmites and Ah, stalactites, those are all made of calcite. And it's also the same chemical formula as limestone. Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is a very common chemical formula. It's everywhere. There's lots of animals, uh, particularly animals in the ocean that make shells out of calcite and aragonite. Oysters are one of them. Cool. So pearls fundamentally are kind of like a defense mechanism for the oysters against foreign substances. If a foreign substance, like a grain of sand or even a parasite or something, gets inside the shell, it can cause a lot of irritation to the oyster. Right. As anyone who's seen an oyster know, these are really soft, tender inner organs inside a hard shell. To protect itself, the animal slowly coats this intrusion in knacker. This is ah. the same stuff that they coat their shell in, right. but they can just coat the intrusion in it, growing a little pearl layer around this foreign object, which Ah, is what's called the nucleus of it. So the the object which it grows around.
1: Okay. So does that mean there's something inside every pearl? Yeah. Every pearl
0: grows around something. That's cool. It's very cool. So that's what we've known. But I said before that this is still a black box. Right. So we know a foreign object goes in. We know a pearl comes out. And we know chemically what happens on the inside. But it's been really hard to observe that. Mm -hmm. Until a recent study which uses just such a cool method to do it. (laughs) Okay. The main question which they set out to solve was the fact that pearls come in all sorts of shapes. There's round spherical pearls. There are elongated pearls that look kind of like pears or teardrops. And they also have rings very commonly. Interesting. People haven't really known how that happens. The intuition is that they rotate, kind of like a lathe. Right a lathe that spins a piece of wood or metal and you can carve it so what these researchers did is they seeded the pearls with these foreign objects these foreign uh nuclei to form the pearl Mm -hmm. they seeded 15 oysters and what they did is they inserted little magnetic particles they were six and a half millimeters in diameter right so pretty small and the key is that they're magnetic (laughs) so then they took these seeded oysters and they placed them inside a magnetometer Cool. This is a device used to measure the strength and the direction of a magnetic field. Okay. So this would, of course, change if that nuclei moved inside the oyster. Right. We're going to post some links in the show notes to pictures of this Mm -hmm. because it looks so crazy and alien. Cool. It's this like little tank, just a little larger than the oyster, with the oyster in it. And then all these wires and tubes coming off of it in this cool. crazy alien-like structure. Can I see? Can you send me that now? Yeah, of course. I'll show you. That.
1: Whoa! Right? What? It's like the Matrix. That's a,
0: It looks it's the Matrix for oysters. The Oyster Matrix. That is crazy town. Right? Oh, wow. All of this to try to observe what's going on inside that shell. So weird. So they seeded the oysters. Mm-hmm. And then... They let them grow, and then they essentially switched them in and out of this magnetometer. Okay. And they left them in there for up to 50 days. Wow. So these were really long time periods, and they sampled every minute. Every minute they recorded what was happening in terms of the magnetic field inside the oyster.
1: That's so cool. Um, I have one question, which is how long, on
0: average, do pearls actually take to form? Right. So they take a year to a year and a half. Oh, my God. That long. Yeah. So it's quite long. Now they didn't, so they didn't leave the oyster in there for the entire time. Right. But they tried to uh, switch them out at different periods of pearl formation to try to get samples of each period of formation. Right. That makes sense. So here's the really cool part. They've got all this raw magnetic field data. And from that, they were actually able to construct a 3D model of the magnetic particles movement during the formation of the pearl. Oh, cool. I'll send you a picture here, Jesse, and I'll, uh, I'll post the link in the show notes. Okay. And these are images of the axis of rotation of the pearl. Whoa. Whoa. Corresponding to the pearls that came out of those oysters. Wow. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. They found that these pearls tend to be still at first. For the perverse 20 to 40 days of formation, they're, they're pretty still. Then they kind of begin to move randomly without any sort of clear direction. Up to 40 days and then they start rotating steadily and constantly for the rest of the period of formation so a year to year and a half, year and a half wow that is amazing and they actually rotate pretty fast when i first heard about these you know rotating pearls i thought okay these are slow like yeah rotation happens once a week or something like that no on average it takes about four hours and 43 minutes to rotate wow so they go through a lot of rotations yeah they're constantly moving around in there interesting the uh the image i sent you there jesse and that i'm going to link to in the show notes shows the axis of rotation mm-hmm. which they were able to plot in three dimensions okay when i say axis of rotation i mean like spinning a top if you spin a top the axis of rotation is right through that part that you uh spin the little handle of the top there. okay so they found that if the axis of rotation was stable if it essentially rotated around the same axis or with just a bit of uh, what's called precession, that's when the handle of the top spins in a little circle okay Rotating things tend to spin around their axis, but they also the axis tends to go in a little bit of a circle Okay They found if the axis of rotation was stable over time the pearl would be shaped like a teardrop Okay, so that's that little teardrop or pear-shaped thing that you get and there's a picture of the pearl that came out of that one there Okay, but if the axis moved randomly if rotation just happened all over the place the pearl would come out spherical Wow, interesting. And so is that the more common outcome? I don't know which one's more common The key implication of that is the spherical one is the more valuable outcome. Right. Spherical pearls tend to sell more than Mm -hmm. weirdly shaped uh, elongated pearls. So ironically, the perfectly spherical ones
1: are actually worth more because there's more randomness that goes in to produce what ends up being a more perfect looking pearl.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I actually didn't think of that. That is, yeah, randomness creates perfection. Huh. yeah spins more erratically so we get a more perfectly spherical pearl that's very cool so i mean in terms of implications from this mainly this is just a cool way at looking inside one of nature's black boxes right if you do seed oysters to make pearls and that's how you make your living maybe this might interest you because maybe you'll be able to find a way to make that access more random and i don't know shake your oysters uh <laughs> that is that is no scientific basis by the way as a heads up <laughs> that's um, just
1: you guessing
0: that's just me guessing because you could like i mean if you could figure out a way to shake up that axis of rotation you could make your pearls more valuable
1: they could probably do a study like a follow-up to this seeing whether certain types or shapes of particles or conditions that the oysters are in affect the quality
0: of the pearl what are you doing if you want to do a phd shaking oysters man they call they call him the oyster shaker
1: If you're listening, you should definitely check out the visuals on this, because it's it's cool to see this sort of map of
0: rotation for these different pearl shapes. Absolutely. Doubleblindscience.com. Boom.
1: Okay, so we're gonna talk about something now that's a pretty hot button issue. It has been for a long time and it's even more now because it's one of the big topics that's coming up for our upcoming Canadian election. In October and this is about marijuana usage. Mm -hmm. This I'll start off with a stat Lucas that I think is pretty interesting. All right. 28% of Canadian children between the ages of 11 and 15 admitted to using cannabis at least once in 2013.
0: Huh that's higher than I would have thought for that age group.
1: Me too and it's higher than it is in the United States as well. It's 23% of kids that age in the U.S. have tried it.
0: Yeah definitely a difference there.
1: So either the Canadian kids are more honest or they just get access earlier which I would totally believe. Interesting
0: that's that's a pretty
1: high rate of kids starting out at an early age using marijuana so obviously a huge area of interest and in research now that legalization is starting to become a serious thing mm-hmm. is what effect early use of cannabis has on the brain and body
0: right so if you legalize and that goes up what are you doing to people there?
1: yeah what is that going to do yeah. to our populace it seems like almost every couple weeks, a new study comes out about some effect of marijuana. Yeah. But it's very rare that a huge scale study actually ends on this and we get to look at the results from a long period of time. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. So this is the results that just came out from a new study. I, know, I say new study. The results are new, but this is a study out of Pittsburgh that's been going since the, the late 80s. Oh, wow. It's one of the longest term and largest scale
0: survey-based studies for marijuana. It's been going longer than I've been alive. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it's around 22 years total for the whole thing.
0: Oh, oh, so they, they spent a couple of years publishing results then? Yes, exactly. Right, okay, that makes sense. They,
1: they had a sample size of 408 people. Okay. Uh, they started out with 14-year-old male students in Pittsburgh public schools in the late 80s, and the study finished when they hit age 36, which was pretty recently, and then they've been going over all the data since then. So yeah, around 22 years total of observation and uh, answering all these questions about their habits. Totally. Users were split into four groups or the participants of the study were split into these four groups based on their average usage levels of, of marijuana. Okay. Um, the, the groups were low or non-users, people who didn't use very frequently. Early chronic users were the, were the participants who, who exhibited frequent use. Okay. Which means four or more times per week.
0: Okay. Yeah. Quite frequent.
1: At an early age. So they started in adolescence. hmm With that high frequency. The next category was only adolescent smokers, so the ones who only smoked during adolescence and then kind of petered out and stopped. And then the last category was later chronic users, ones who started either in the low or non user category and then ramped up their consumption of marijuana as they got older. Right, okay. And so the researchers had to control for variables like. Cigarette smoking, drinking, other drug use, access to health insurance, socioeconomic status, the list goes on and on. There's this comprehensive list of factors that they had to control for. Totally. And what they were looking for is what the effects would be over the course of this study on a huge host of different factors. Uh, They tested physical characteristics like asthma, allergies, heart problems, kidney disease, diabetes, headaches, blood pressure, cancer, STDs. All sorts of things like that. Okay, yeah, that's a lot. They looked at mental conditions too as well, like uh, searching for like psychotic disorders, like panic disorders, agoraphobia, anxiety disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive, having depressive episodes, manic episodes, depression, delusional disorder.
0: It, it, it's insane. They really did, yeah, have a thorough
1: list. Yeah, huge list of things they were looking for here. Okay. So here we are. It's quite... Quite a long time after this study started. Yeah. It was just published. And so what is the big result that they found? Yeah. Pretty much nothing. Huh. And that's what makes this so interesting. They found no statistically significant differences between the groups after adjusting for all of those confounding variables. Okay.
0: Interesting. So now when you say adjusting for these confounding variables, you mean trying to take out the effects of socioeconomic status?
1: Exactly, and that's, I'll get to that in a second, but one of the criticisms of a lot of earlier research is that they end up with these correlations that are not causations, right? Where they'll they'll see that, oh, this group were heavier smokers and they had this problem, and this group were less heavy smokers cannabis smokers and they didn't have this problem and then it turns out that the group that was smoking more is also way poorer right they come from poorer families yeah and so they're dealing with a whole host of other issues that come out of those sorts of problems gotcha okay yeah that makes sense so that, that was the key thing is that after dealing with all of these possible variables that could screw up the results they found that Nothing. There, there was no significant difference wow it's it's a really really interesting result because it goes against um, a few pretty notable studies from the last 10 years. Okay. And confirms a couple of other ones. What, what's fundamentally different about this study from some of the other recent ones that people might have heard about is that this study used annual reports for over half of the length of time that the study was going on for. Okay. What, what others do? Well, this is kind of funny, actually. So the, the researchers in this study mention a, a 2011 study that found a link between early marijuana use and depression later in life. Okay.
0: I've heard of that link before. For yeah, sure.
1: it was a it was a pretty big headline when it came out in 2011. So the authors of this study believe that it's due to a difference in measurement techniques. And there's a really funny line in the actual published study of this that okay. re- that I read as a total like kind of a hey, screw you to the to the this other study in a very uh, scientific way. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the direct quote is this discrepancy may be due to methodological differences. Is how they say it. Yeah, and then they go on to elaborate. They say all years between the first and last time using in this other study were coded as marijuana using years. Oh, so those those binary states of deciding that they were using marijuana in this time or not were used to model the trajectory of their usage over time.
0: Terrible. So they so in the the earlier study they literally took time between first joint and time between last joint. Yeah. and said chronic user from first joint to last joint. Yeah,
1: th- those were the years that this person was using marijuana. That
0: sounds like a really bad way to do it.
1: It's not a great way to do it. It's better than nothing, but this is Agreed. definitely a like there's a much higher sample right here.
0: Right. So they talked to people every year about their frequency and then and then they classified based on annual reports.
1: Yes, exactly
0: right into one of those four groups. Yeah. Okay,
1: that makes sense. Um, I think they I think it, for the first 14 years, they did annual reporting and then after that they were more intermittent with the final follow-up being at age 36. Okay, yeah. So they were very consistent for the first 14 years right. That kind of explains why they found a different result in regards to depression. Which was the big thing that that twenty eleven study was talking about? Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: in terms of psychosis and other psychotic disorders, again, this current study found no link. Okay, but there were some studies published in twenty fourteen and twenty eleven that did find a link. Again, the researchers in this study go on to say that that might be because those earlier ones used retrospective reports collected from patients who were already experiencing psychotic disorders.
0: So what does what does that exactly mean?
1: So that means that their participants. Some of them were experiencing uh, certain psychotic disorders okay. that they'd been diagnosed with. Mm-hmm. And they were asked in, in huge sort of self-reporting survey form. Both of these studies used, the current study used self-reporting. self-reporting. That, that's, yeah. that's kind of fine for this. It's got its own little issues, but that's totally fine. But the earlier studies asked people to self-report retroactively. Right. So they're asking them to look back and and say, you know, when did you first start smoking marijuana, et cetera. Whereas this new one was at each given time, it was a how much are you currently using marijuana? Right. So there's just more accuracy to that. A couple other little interesting things that I found from this was Mm -hmm. if we just kind of talk a a little bit about the state of research into cannabis use and its effect on people over time. Sure. Uh, One interesting thing That is sort of still supported by the research that they just did in this study. Mm -hmm. Is there was a big meta study done a few years ago where they looked at the results from a whole bunch of different studies and they found that heavy marijuana users tended to get symptoms of psychotic conditions on average around three years before non users did, but they weren't more likely to get them. Oh, interesting. So if you were kind of already really susceptible to a certain condition like schizophrenia, your symptoms yeah. would onset earlier, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a higher likelihood that you would develop schizophrenia. That makes
0: sense. That's really interesting. Yeah.
1: So the results of that are supported by this study that there's no increase in frequency, but there could still be that increase in speed of onset. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I, and I mean, this study's not perfect. Like they they admit themselves that they might be missing some of the more subtle effects. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they're looking. At larger psychological issues here, like diagnosable conditions, they're not looking at little mood changes, right? And you know, they 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 even said it would be interesting to see what happened if they lowered their threshold for those sorts of conditions to to little little things that might be indicators of them, like excessive suspiciousness is one they mentioned, or strange thinking because those can often lead to some of these more serious conditions. Mm -hmm. And of course, this does stop at the mid-30s, which may be too early to see a lot of these things actually develop fully. Of course, it's a really long study, but... Yeah. This is also not a study that looked at anything like... They didn't look at brain structure or IQ or brain function at all. And those are things that have been recently studied. And the IQ one is still really up in the air, but a recent study pretty convincingly found links between shrinkage in certain areas of the brain and heavy marijuana use at an
0: early age. Huh. Okay. So there could be a lot of potentially very serious issues still. Yeah.
1: We're kind of at the point now, like I, I've been researching this stuff a lot and I find it a really interesting issue. I mean, I don't, I don't have a horse in this race. I just, I think it's going to be, I just want everyone to be the most educated on this as possible because clearly we're, we're reaching a point where legalization is on the horizon.
0: Yeah, decisions are going to be made on this. Yeah,
1: so we should really know what's happening. It very much seems to me to be the case that we we know that there are effects on the brain from heavy usage of cannabis, mm-hmm. but we we don't really know how that actually affects our behavior and our general health.
0: Right. So this is something that kind of speaks to the general health side of that.
1: Yeah, and and finds that there isn't really a significant or noticeable change in health for people who have early usage early heavy usage at least up to that age of 36 right gotcha i mean things like iq it's it's also a really interesting area like the the commonly quoted study when people talk about marijuana reducing the people's iq Mm -hmm. is this 2012 study out of duke university which you may have heard of because it found this link between heavy marijuana use and an iq decline in teenagers but then and so, so the, the study's quoted all over the place yeah but then, then i started looking into it more and there were only 38 people in the study huh, very small very very small sample size for something medical um yeah. and then six months later a follow-up study was published in the same journal finding that the paper failed to account for all of the confounding factors we were talking about earlier like socioeconomic issues and stuff
0: right the ones that this one did do a good job of yeah
1: exactly yeah and then last year in 2014 a study out of london found no relationship between cannabis use and lower IQ looking at children and teenagers although they did find that the heaviest users scored three percent lower on their school exams that they took at age 16 was that because they were stoned when they were taking their exams (laughs) I guess that is a possibility yeah we're we're really at this point where it's like we know that heavy usage of this stuff is affecting your brain it's absolutely doing something it's absolutely changing it Mm -hmm. we just don't really know how that will affect us right yeah yeah It's a key question. It is a key question. It's important that we look at this study to decide what we want to look at moving forward, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. Well, that's it for this week. We'll have links to all of the studies we discussed and more in this episode's show notes, which you can find at our lovely website, DoubleBlindScience.com.
0: If you've seen something in the news you want us to explain, you want us to cover, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us, stories at DoubleBlindScience.com, or tweet us on Twitter.
1: What's our Twitter handle?
0: Oh, right, we have a, we have, you have to know that, don't you? Yeah. What is at, at double blind SCI. Please tweet us. us. Please tweet us. We love it. We're lonely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a um, um. lot. <laughs> so, do, do I need to say anything else? No, I think that's it. <laughs> I think that's it. Okay. See you next week. <laughs> See you next week.